Good afternoon and welcome. This is yet another podcast sponsored by the American Bankruptcy Institute. This one is going to be focusing on consumer bankruptcy concerns. My name is David Epstein. I am a law professor, and in addition, uh, in the spring of 2012, I have the honor of serving as the visiting scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am joined today by Professor Catherine Porter of the University of California at Irvine. Professor Porter, who goes by name Katie, is one of our country's leading authorities on consumer bankruptcy. Her sort of career path began with a clerkship with my idol, the late Judge Richard Arnold. Unlike many law professors today, Katie then actually practiced law for a couple of years before becoming an academic and has taught at various law schools before settling in at the University of California, Irvine. Katie is an uncommonly productive scholar, and one of the things that I would like Katie to tell us about is a new book that has just been published by the Stanford University Press entitled Broke, How Debt Bankrupts the Middle Class. Katie, can you tell us about the book? Yes, um, I'd love to. Thank you for having me. Um, The book Broke is the uh, most recent publication from um, a group of people that use the Consumer Bankruptcy Project um, data. And as many people may know, the Consumer Bankruptcy Project began um, many years ago with Elizabeth Warren and Jay Westbrook and Teresa Sullivan um, doing um, a study of who the families are that go bankrupt. That Those studies have been repeated several times. The first one was in 1981, um, what I like to remind um, Elizabeth and Jay and Terry, I was in first grade. Um, and so that was the first study. The next one was in 1991. Um, we did one in 2001. And then we did one in 2007. And the focus of the 2007 study was trying to look at the consumer bankruptcy system after the passage of the bankruptcy reform amendments, after BAPSIPA, and to repeat some of the same research to see if things had changed, and also to try to break some new ground, to try to understand some aspects of the bankruptcy system that we realized, despite having done these prior studies, we still didn't understand. Katie, with respect to the 2007 Consumer Bankruptcy Project, uh, is that accessible to by practicing attorneys, and would that be something that would be helpful to practicing attorneys? Yeah, so the data themselves, the raw data, the responses that we got from families are not available because our institutional review boards, the people who make sure that we treat the debtors that we interact with appropriately and respect their privacy rights, we're not allowed to release the data. However, um, much of the published, we've published a great deal of research from it, um, including one piece that I think is particularly useful um, that gives a nice overview of who the families are in 2007 and explains the methodology of the project, which is really important. Um, when you hear about a finding from the study, it's nice to know where we got our information. And that piece is in the American Bankruptcy Law Journal, but all of the Consumer Bankruptcy Project papers, or nearly all of them, are available on a website of the Bankruptcy Data Project at Harvard. 
Um, it's a great website if people haven't set it out. It was put together by Elizabeth Warren and Bob Lawless. And what you can do there is you can access the papers from the Consumer Bankruptcy Project. You can also use data provided by Epic Systems to do your own little study. Um, and you can also access Lynn Lopucky's um, bankruptcy database of the very large Chapter 11 cases. So for consumers or media or anyone who wants to get their hands dirty and read more, um, that Bankruptcy Data Project at Harvard website is great. And I'll go ahead and give the URL if that's okay. Please, I was about to ask you to. Yeah, it's um, BDP dot law dot harvard dot edu so bdp which stands for bankruptcy data project dot law dot harvard dot edu um, and so there's a great place to go if you click on the right hand side it says papers and if you click there you can have access to, to all the different papers authored by many of the consumer bankruptcy project um, scholars Lots of great empirical stuff there, including a fairly complete collection of the works of Elizabeth Warren, um, which takes up several pages, not surprisingly. So, um, but in terms of the 2007 Consumer Bankruptcy Project, the book is really unique in that it uses, each chapter uses data. So most of the time um, when you have a book by a law professor, they might have a little bit of data, but mostly the book is what they think. Um, and this book is, is what we think, but it's what we think based on what we found. Um, and so each chapter uses some data, some real information that real families in bankruptcy um, gave us or provided to the court to explore an aspect of the system. Can you give us some sense of the specific topics that are covered by the book? Absolutely. So um, the book tries to, to cover most of the major topics. Um, it opens up with an introduction chapter that I wrote that kind of tries to put um, this moment in time of studying bankruptcy in context. So it takes a look at the, the run-up in consumer debt that I think a lot of people think the run-up in consumer debt was kind of a problem of the 2000s. It was an excess of the subprime era. But actually, consumer debt's been climbing sharply since the mid-'80s, um, especially compared to income, which has been relatively flat. So that's the opening chapter. Um, the next part of the book is called The Debtor Next Door. Um, and I, I love that title because it helps to um, emphasize sort of who these families are and the ways in which they look a lot like um, the sort of many, many Americans. Um, and so it features a chapter on the middle class. Um, and then the next chapter looks at different ways to measure financial distress. So I think one of the things that happens to law professors who study bankruptcy is we tend to think um, bankruptcy, if you, if you have financial problems, what you do is go bankrupt. And the truth is, if you have debt problems, what you do is, is file bankruptcy sometimes. There are many other kinds of financial problems families can have, um, no assets, um, sort of being chronically delinquent on very low amounts of debt, and those may not lead to bankruptcy, but they're still forms of financial trouble. And so that chapter um, uses data from the, from the Fed, um, from the Federal Reserve, to kind of compare how do bankrupt families look the same or different than other families who are having financial problems. Um, the next part of the book is called Starting Right and Ending Wrong. And it looks at some of the decisions that people make that they hope are going to be good for them financially that seem to actually contribute sometimes to their financial distress. And specifically, um, it looks at three different kinds of decisions. It looks at um, owning a house, buying a house, um, and mortgage debt and its contribution to financial trouble. Um, the chapter I authored um, is called College Lessons. And it looks at a, a fact that's been true for a long time. We've known it, but we haven't known what to make of it. Um, I'm not sure we still do, which is that um, 
people with some college, that is, they've got some college credit, but less than a bachelor's degree, okay, so they went to community college, maybe they have an associate's degree, maybe they did a training program, they are um, grossly overrepresented in the bankruptcy system. So we often hear that it's important that everybody get beyond high school and everybody try to get some more higher education. And there may be some value to that, but it does seem like those people who get just a little bit more education and they don't get that bachelor's degree um, seem to run a, um, an, a sort of oversized risk of winding up um, in bankruptcy. So that's a good one if you've got a college student you're trying to encourage to, to hurry up and graduate. Um, I recommend Chapter 5 for you. Um, and then the last chapter in that section is about the self-employed. Um, in bankruptcy. And so we've known for a while that um, what we call consumer bankruptcies often contain many people who have run small businesses, um, and those small businesses that they've been self-employed, those fail. Um, so that's what that chapter looks like. Um, the next section um, continues on that theme and looks at kind of the pain of bankruptcy. It's called Hurting at Home. Um, it has a nice chapter by Marianne Colhane looking at wh where the families go when they lose their houses and how many families lose houses in bankruptcy. Um, and I believe Marianne's sort of marquee finding was that one year after bankruptcy, which is pretty quick, just one year after filing, um, that there had been um, a substantial number of people who had already lost their homes that quickly. So, I mean, it's, we tend to think about, yes, they may lose their homes later on, um, but what we found is that quite a few go ahead and lose their homes sort of very, very early um, in cases. So, um, a good number, I think about 10% had lost their home by just one year after, and that's pretty speedy um, given the number of, of Chapter 7 cases and um, Chapter 13 cases continuing to pen. Um, the next chapter looks at the strain on marriages, which is something I think that um, practicing attorneys see a lot, but those of us in academia or the policy world don't see is how filing bankruptcy and being in financial trouble can really strain a couple's relationship. And um, that's a very, very interesting chapter. The last section of the book is called The Hard Road Out, um, and it's the one that I think probably is the most interesting to attorneys. Um, it looks at the legal system itself, and it has two um, chapters. One is by Angie Litwin, um, and it's called The Do-It-Yourself Mirage, um, and it's about pro se filers um, and who files pro se and how they fare in the bankruptcy system. And then the next chapter is about race um, and Chapter 13 bankruptcy. That work was recently featured on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and the book concludes with um, a chapter by a sociologist and a political scientist who try to put um, the, the experience and the rise in financial trouble and debt um, and bankruptcy in, in context in our society and in our um, political system, sort of what does it mean to have families struggling with debt? What does it mean for um, how our society um, interacts, what does it mean for the political system, uh, how does it connect to other aspects of the social safety net, so the relationship between debt and things like retirement opportunity and unemployment and health care um, and things like that. So um, it's, a, it's a fairly wide-ranging book, but because each of the chapters uses that same set of data, I think there's a continuity there that makes it really readable. Um, you can sort of sit down and read it and all the chapters flow together because they're all using that, that same data set. Katie, what was the intended audience, or was there a single intended audience? Was this book written for other academics? Was it written for practicing lawyers? Was it written for the general public, or to some extent all of the above? Yeah, I think it was largely, I mean, we hope that we've made it accessible enough for the 
for the general public. And, you know, you can't trust one's own mother. But my mother claims that she was able to read and understand, quote, all of it but two or three charts. So that's Ah. pretty good, I think. My mom's not a lawyer. Um, She wasn't just talking about the chapter you wrote. No, she claims actually not to have read one of those yet. So that goes to tell you something right there. She's pretty honest. Um, so we hope that it's accessible to anyone with a with a sort of um, basic, you know, basic knowledge of, um, of of social science. Anyone who went to college, um, we included in it a primer on bankruptcy, um, which I think will, which you know, is dramatically simplified um, the complexities of the consumer system. But it's designed to allow the book, among other things, to be used in graduate courses in sociology or um, public policy, one of the things we're starting to see in um, other social sciences is a real sense that um, the problem of consumer debt is one that we can't just leave to the study of law professors, but in fact, consumer debt has become one of the most common qualities, um, shared qualities of the middle class. So more families in America have consumer debt then are married, then go to church, then right, do all, go to college, then have college degrees, then all of these other markers of what it means to be a sort of a, a typical American family. So the book was designed to be used both um, in law school classes, which I did with great success, and I have a, a whole syllabus put together that um, would be a great course for um, a law professor, including an adjunct who is in practice, um, because you really can take my syllabus, my readings, I have the lesson plans for you, the writing assignments, um, everything's kind of ready to go. And you can use this book, um, one chapter um, is assigned each week of the 13-week semester, um, and it makes a really nice seminar um, for students and a nice way for adjuncts who want to bring their practice experience into the classroom but need some materials to, to help do that. So I hope we'll see some of our talented um, consumer bankruptcy practitioners and the trustees interested in teaching a course on consumer bankruptcy. Um, and I hope this book will be useful for them for a seminar for that purpose. That's a great suggestion, Katie. I've just made a note to send an email to uh, our associate dean for academic affairs. At the same time, or virtually at the same time that this book was coming out, you uh, also had coming out in the uh, Texas Law Review uh, an empirical study with the captivating title with respect to bankruptcy, The Pretend Solution. Uh, And in this article, you focus in part on the outcome of Chapter 13 cases, especially uh, the overwhelming majority of Chapter 13 cases in which the debtor is unable to complete his or her plan obligations. Uh, Can you summarize what this article uh, tells a practicing attorney that he or she should be paying attention to? Right. So I think this is the, the takeaway message to sum it up. Um, what, I, what I mean by the title, um, what I mean by the title, The Pretend Solution, is that we've got a consumer bankruptcy system, and, and in particular with Chapter 13, that is generous, it's well-intended, the people in the system, the attorneys, the trustees, the judges, the debtors themselves, they're, they're, they're hardworking, they want to succeed, um, and, we, and we, I mean, there's lots of tools, lots of legal twists and turns and things you can do. If you've ever tried to teach Chapter 13, right, it, it goes on and on. It's complicated, and the students want to tear their hair out. And we've built this complex, generous, 
um, system that attracts hundreds of thousands of families a year, and we want it to work. It sounds like a great idea. You get to keep your stuff if you're a debtor. You get to have some financial discipline. You get to repay over time. You're making good faith. You're making your creditors partially or completely whole. It just sounds wonderful. And, it's, and that idea has appealed to us. We put it into place in 1978. It was with great fanfare that we enacted Chapter 13. It was widely lauded as a major improvement. Um, and at the same time, what we've known from that very first study that Ward and Westbrook did when they studied families in 1981 was that only one out of three families who files Chapter 13 gets a discharge, completes the repayment plan. And we've known that for 30 years now. And one of the responses to that has been, a powerful response, has been, well, but you can't use that fact to beat up the Chapter 13 system. And we've often heard attorneys and trustees and those working in the system say, you can't use the discharge as the measure because there are all kinds of other things people accomplish in Chapter 13 other than the discharge. They might cure their arrears on their mortgage, and having done that, they, they drop out of 13 because they don't, they don't have any unsecured debt or they don't care about their unsecured debt. Or maybe they hung out in Chapter 13 for a year until they got a, uh, some overtime or got a different job and they were able to then pay off their debts on their own, right? All these kind of alternate happy tales, what I refer to as a sort of choose-your-own-adventure um, story about how Chapter 13 could come out. So what I did in this um, study is I interviewed by phone um, uh, several hundred people who had, whose Chapter 13 cases had just ended. They had just ended by being converted or being dismissed. And those interviews were about an hour to an hour and a half each. They were very long. And what we principally did in these interviews was I asked these families two things, main questions. What did you want to accomplish in your Chapter 13 case? And did you accomplish it? And what we find is, and what I find is, and I talk about this, is that they, they wanted largely to keep their house, and they wanted a break from the pressure on their creditors. Those are the two big things people want to find. I think practicing attorneys already know that. They hear that every day. And I take it these people, then, Katie, are willing to pay, what is it, north of $2,000, if you figure in attorney's fees and filing fees in order to accomplish yeah, 25, that? I think the median Chapter 13 fee back in um, 2007 was about 2500 Wow. Uh, sorry. Yeah, so $2,500, that was the median. Okay, so some are higher and some are lower. That may have gone up a little bit since then. Um, so that's a big price uh, um, jump over Chapter 7, right? Um, mm-hmm. So they come in, they want to keep their house. They want to, want to break from the pressure of the creditors, psychological break. They, they don't want to be harassed. They want to feel like they're getting control of this debt problem. And what I find is that while they're in bankruptcy, while they're making those payments, Boy, the bankruptcy works great, right? They, they, the creditors quit calling because of the stay, um, and, and I find the stay works real well that way, and, and people get to stay in their houses for a while longer. The problem is they, 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 can't, they can't make it to the end. Okay, and I'll talk a little bit more in a minute about why they can't make it to the end, but they wind up dropping out, and the reason for the dropout is almost always a sad story, a story about, income that just can't stretch to make that mortgage payment, a story about a a medical problem that just keeps getting worse, 
a story about um, a family that ends up divorcing half, you know, a couple years into their Chapter 13 plan. They can't live on the two incomes and make the plan work. Um, lots of reasons, but what happens is they don't actually accomplish those ultimate goals. So while they're in bankruptcy, it works fine, but the reality is they end up exiting, and when they do exit, they lose their house, and the creditors start calling them again. And so, you know, that part, that back end, what happens to these families is something that I think it's a lot harder for the attorneys to see. I think it's harder for the judges to see. Um, I think often what happens is the attorney will, the debtor will call the attorney. They'll say, I don't have the money to make my payment. I lost my job or my wife lost her job or we have a bunch of extra bills or, you know, whatever happened. And what's the attorney supposed to say? We ask them, and I ask them in the study, what does your attorney tell you? And the attorney usually tells them, well, just stop paying. If you can't pay, you can't pay. Um, and the trustee will dismiss your case, and you can either file again. Sometimes the attorney will talk to them about conversion. But it really illustrates not a limitation on attorneys, who I think are, are doing a, a pretty decent job here. In fact, in some cases, a really good job. It's a limitation of the system. Right? Chapter 13 envisions that you can keep this stable income and these stable expenses for five years, right? And particularly after BAPSIPA, most plans are five-year, 60-month plans. Um, I don't know about you, David, but my income and expenses are nowhere near stable for 60 months. Um, and so it's, it's really hard for these families to get to the end. And so the point of the, the admittedly provocative title, The Pretend Solution, um, is to say that we have to go behind the best possible outcome, right? We gave people these tools. Chapter 13 sounds fabulous. If it worked, it would be a fabulous solution. But we're pretending to some extent that there are all these families, that most families achieve what they want to achieve. The reality is that one-third of families get to a discharge. The other two-thirds don't. And those two-thirds who don't, those are the ones that I study, those two-thirds who don't, the majority, the vast majority of those families do not achieve what they wanted to with bankruptcy. They lose their house, and their creditors begin to, and they don't achieve any discharge of their unsecured debt, and the creditors start calling. Now, I want to be real clear about this. That's not to say that Chapter 13 bankruptcy was worthless. They got something out of it. They got some time. They took a step to try to help themselves. Um, it might have given some relief to the stress on their marriage and their kids while they regrouped. It's not to suggest that we're not doing anything for those families, but it's really to point to where the consumer bankruptcy system, um, where its shortcomings are as we think about what do we want to do for reform, what would a consumer bankruptcy system, a better consumer bankruptcy system look like. I think it suggests that um, we've got some problems in Chapter 13 in trying to achieve more than is realistically possible given these family circumstances given the limitations of the law that we have, um, I think that system is, is, is struggling. Um, and I think it's been struggling for a long time. I think this is just one more piece of data um, that kind of refutes this. Well, maybe there's a lot of people who get there without a discharge. And my, my study suggests if you don't get the discharge, if you don't complete that Chapter 13 plan, you're having a bad ultimate outcome. Um, and so we either need to channel those people into Chapter 7 or we need to maybe reform the consumer bankruptcy system to provide some different tools that work better for families than what we've got right now. Well, with respect to channeling more people uh, into Chapter 7, uh, brings to mind a, 
an issue that's been percolating in, in the lower courts for a while is, is best I can tell. I think it, it's about to hit a circuit court for the first time. Uh, and uh, that's the issue of whether uh, a debtor should be able to use Chapter 13 to formulate a plan when essentially the only unsecured creditor being paid under the plan is going to be the debtor's attorney. Uh, One of the reasons for use of Chapter 13 historically has been the ability of the debtor to pay the attorney over time as opposed to having to pay the attorney before he or she files for bankruptcy. Do you have any comment that you'd like to make on on that issue, which is about to be before the First Circuit in the Puffer case? Yeah, I mean, I think that what this illustrates um, is the fact that the consumer bankruptcy system has become very expensive. Um, And it's while while it's well, there are aspects of it that are very generous to consumers in the sense that if you look at the American bankruptcy system in context of the other systems in the world, even after BAPSIPA, we have a, a fairly generous system. It's expensive. Um, and so what you see here in, in the puffer case is, you know, someone who um, decides to file right away um, instead of saving up um, the money to file Chapter 7. I have an article um, that deals with this exact point, um, co-authored with Ronald Mann um, in the Georgetown Law Review that's called Saving Up for Bankruptcy. Um, and it looks at the, in part at this phenomenon, and what we find is that most families um, are not able to file right away. There's often a substantial gap, three to six months or more, between when they come to see an attorney um, and when they're able to file. And what they're doing in that three to six months is saving up the attorney's fees if they're going to file Chapter 7. Um, one of the great advantages of Chapter 13 has always been that you could you could pay your attorney's fees over time. Um, you know, so in this case... You know, I don't have a particular comment on whether or not this is or is not bad faith, except to say that I think that part, one of the heralded benefits of Chapter 13 has been this issue to finance the attorney fees, in essence. Um, and so if we see that starting to be eroded, I think it's, it's weakening what has been one of the better benefits of Chapter 13 for families, uh, particularly for families facing foreclosure where they need that emergency filing, um, I think that's where the ability to file um, to file Chapter 13 right away with zero down is probably the most the most useful um, in the case of you, know, you can't well, you can't save up for bankruptcy where you need to get in there um, right away to prevent a repossession or get a car back so someone can travel um, to a job or to stop a foreclosure. Well, Katie, for the benefit of of anybody that's listening to this that uh, is not an attorney or is not a bankruptcy attorney. Uh, I assume that you share my view that that in the main, the lawyers who do consumer bankruptcy work, whether they're doing Chapter 7 cases or Chapter 13 cases, uh, are not being overcompensated. Uh, That while there is a problem about bankruptcy becoming a more costly process for individuals, uh, that's in part because of the additional burdens placed on attorneys uh, by some of the provisions added by Congress in 2005. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say, in fact, that while the problem began before 2005, it's the addition of those burdens that's kind of, that's kind of pushed it to the fore. I mean, I think the problem is probably that we're, given the complexity 
given how hard it is to counsel a client appropriately and to navigate the consumer bankruptcy system, given all of the decisions and options and choices and challenges that a family is going to face in, in choosing which chapter to file, in completing the paperwork, in meeting the legal standards, I suspect we probably undercompensate consumer bankruptcy attorneys, okay? Um, but the flip side, as you point out, is from the family standpoint, they can't afford the fees. And the fees have gone up a great deal since BEPSIPA, um, and they've gone up because the system's been more complex. So the way I see to resolve this, which is that I think attorneys are, are, are needing to do, a to, to do the good job they are doing and to do an even better job, okay, um, they probably need even higher fees. The flip side, we've got families that can't afford to pay. My, my you know, proffered solution or way out of this is that we need to think about designing a less complex bankruptcy system. And, it, you know, such as, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details about what I think about that, but I'm working on it for, for further research. But I think one of the things we might want to revisit is this idea of having um, two chapters. There's this fundamental choice between 7 and 13 that confronts every debtor. Um, it takes an enormous amount of attorney time and attorney skill and attorney knowledge to counsel a family appropriately about that choice. And I think one of the things that my pretend solution piece points to is there's, there's really negative consequences um, if, if, if you make the wrong choice. Um, and so I, I'm in favor of what I call a single chapter system that would try to combine some of the elements from both, because I think eliminating that fundamental choice between 7 and 13 would do a great deal to simplify. It's not the only thing we could do to simplify, but I think it would be a good start um, to simplify the consumer bankruptcy system, it would certainly address the concern, for example, in Puffer uh, about the fees and people choosing one chapter or the other based on the fee. Um, I don't think we want that. I don't think that's the idea Congress had for why you choose 13 or 7 was, was whether you had the money to pay. Um, so I would like to see a, a much less complex system, and I think a, a, a single chapter combining some of the elements in 7 and 13 is, is one of the ways we can do that. There are plenty of other possibilities and people with other good ideas on that. Yeah, and among them, if you go way back to the uh, first bankruptcy commission back in the 1970s, suggested the possibility of uh, changing consumer bankruptcy from being judicial in nature to being administrative in nature. But I take it that if would it be a fair summary of the both the book and the article uh, to suggest that, that that in each uh, the flaws that are identified are not flaws attributable to attorneys or to judges, but to the system that they're working with. Yes, I mean, look, we're all part of the system. You. Me, the judges, the trustees, the attorneys—we're all, we're all, well, the taxpayers, the you know, the citizens who vote. I mean, we're all, we're all responsible in some way for the system that we've built um, and the system that exists. But there's no, and so I think we all have a responsibility to think about these issues, to talk about them in productive ways, to to do the best we can. Um, to, in my case, to try to understand the system better um, and to provide information. In the case of an attorney, to do the best they can for his or her client. Um, given the law that we have, but you're absolutely right that there's there's nothing in 
of the book or the pretend solution piece that would say, boy, the problem here is if only the bar had to take a little bit more CLE credit. Um, there's, there's nothing like that. And in fact, one of the surprising things for me, and I'm going to be writing about this soon, um, is that in my study of these families that, that dropped out of Chapter 13 and they're, and they're on the brink of losing their house and they, they didn't get a discharge you know, and, they, and they spent $2,000 or $3,000 to file Chapter 13, over, you know, um, I, I expected them to be pretty angry, um, pretty angry at their attorney, pretty angry at the trustee or the judge. Um, and by and large, they aren't. They, they, they think people treated them nicely and with respect. They think people tried to help them. Um, and I think that's probably right. Um, but at the same time, um, we're not getting the job done. The law, the law does not have the tools that it needs to deal with the kinds of mortgage debts and the kind of job instability and income instability that we have today. Um, and so I'm glad that these debtors um, have a positive experience and, and largely feel good about how they were treated and about the professionals in the system. I think it's a wonderful uh, message and one that sometimes we don't, we don't get the word out often enough about attorneys really helping people. Um, at the same time, I think at the policy level, um, the book and the article both contain kind of efforts at a wake-up call um, that, you know, this system, this system doesn't work. Um, and we, we need to kind of quit trying to just tinker at the margins and quit trying to repeal this tiny little piece or that tiny little piece of um, the system and quit kind of saying, oh, it's all BAPSIPA's fault. Um, and instead we need to kind of look big and think big um, and see that what we've got here is just a system that has become too large and too complex um, to, to do the job that we're trying to task it with. Um, and so I, I hope it stimulates some, some good ideas for reform um, and some conversations, both among attorneys and their clients, but also among the, the policymakers, the, um, the academics. Uh, I hope it contributes to the continuing conversation as we think about where do we go forward? How do we, in this new economy, um, with these debt levels, with this recession kind of lingering on, the recession-like conditions lingering on, what are we going to do um, to help families get back on their feet? What are we going to do about the consumer debt overhang um, that our families are still struggling with? So I hope that it helps stimulate solutions. Um, but, boy, you know, I'm an active member of the bar, and I sure hope the solution isn't that i got to take a little bit more CLE credit. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time and trouble, Katie. This has been very helpful to me. Thank you, David. <laughs>